Our second lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, the shortest of the Gospels, right after Matthew. We're going to read Mark 6, 1 through 13, and then I tagged on a couple of verses at the end of the chapter. He, Jesus, left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all this? What's this wisdom that's been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Yoses and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown, and among their own kin, and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then he went about among the villages teaching. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place will not welcome you, they refuse to hear you, as you leave, Shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. The apostles gathered around Jesus, told them all that they had done and taught. He said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves for a little while and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, but they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In our text today, Jesus returns home. And we see his vulnerability. And then he sends his disciples out in vulnerable pairs. And we see how God's mission to the world is an invitation offered vulnerably to a world that can refuse it. Jesus heads back home, and it's complicated, because home is always complicated. How do you answer the question, where are you from? If I had been down at Navy Pier on July 4th, and someone had asked me, where am I from, I would have told them, from Chicago. I live in Lincoln Park. Because I would have assumed that most of the people down at Navy Pier on July 4th are from out of town. And so I'm from Chicago. But if I'm at Breakthrough on a Thursday night serving uh, a meal with some of the women who stay in Breakthrough's residential center there, and I'm talking to someone who grew up on the west side of Chicago or on the south side of Chicago, and she asks me where home is or where I'm from, I don't say Chicago. I say Michigan, 
But if I'm in Michigan and someone asks me where I'm from, I don't say Michigan. I say, well, Chicago or kind of Wisconsin. But if I'm in Wisconsin, I don't say I'm from Wisconsin. I say I'm from Chicago or maybe from Michigan. But I was born in Iowa. And my sister was just in the Netherlands. And my roots, they went, she went to the, the church where my great-great-great-grandparents have their name in the membership rolls. And there's a paper factory that says scut on it. So that's kind of my homeland, but that's not home. And I don't know about you, but home is complicated. And if it's not complicated geographically for you, then I'm sure that at least in some ways it's complicated emotionally. Home's complicated. In our text today, Jesus goes home. And it's complicated. Jesus doesn't begin his public ministry in his hometown of Nazareth because sometimes you have to leave home to start something new. But eventually he makes his way back into the hill country where his familiar hometown is set against a slope. It's a small town. Jesus begins his ministry when he's 30 years old, which means that the first three decades, most of them are spent in Nazareth, this town, this hometown. For the three decades, he grows up much like every other Jewish boy and teenager and young man. His mom still lives there. His brothers and sisters still haven't moved that far away. They're still around. Most people who grow up in Nazareth don't leave. Probably not unlike wherever you are from. And I wonder what it was like for Jesus to return to the synagogue where he had sat for 20 plus years listening to teachers. It's where he learned how to read. It's where he learned how to write. It's where the visiting rabbi would come in and he would learn about Isaiah the prophet for the first time. I picture Mrs. Van Merrill's third grade classroom with the math multiplication chart on the wall to my right and my desk with the hinge top hiding my organized stacks of books and notebooks and pencil holder and the newly installed whiteboard is in front of me and I wonder if Jesus has similar spatial memories about his time in the synagogue in Nazareth. I think that he must long, like we all do, no matter how old we grow, for the approving nod of his mother or the admiration of his younger siblings. Jesus is fully human, and I think that part of being fully human is to long for those who know you best, to love you most, or to at least accept you. And I wonder if that part of him is hurt in this visit. He teaches apparently with all of the skill and authority that he has been teaching with in the surrounding synagogues. They're astounded by what they hear. They can't deny that it's incredible what he's saying. Where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that's been given to him? Surely this isn't his own stuff. He's borrowing stuff from people for sure. They assume... They recognize him as the town craftsman, the carpenter. And this discredits whatever he is saying. Imagine that your plumber, you find out, has a TED Talk on the neuroscience of contentment. You're dumbfounded. Or imagine that your, your personal trainer has just published a theological tome on the philosophy of Descartes. Or It doesn't make sense. He's the craftsman, the carpenter. He knows he's the guy who fixes my doors. And now he's here teaching in the synagogue. This hasn't been his path. He's not 
He doesn't have the training that other rabbis have. And now he's showing up in our hometown and teaching us. And they say, isn't this Mary's kid? And it's telling that they say, isn't he Mary's kid rather than isn't he the son of Joseph? Which tells us that Joseph has not been in the picture for probably decades. Mary is a widow of one sort or another. And we learn that Jesus has all these siblings. Four brothers are named, all with the, the first letter, the, the I that starts Jesus' name. Jesus, Yoses, uh, James is Jacobes, um, and then there's Simon, which I guess they ran out of the, the I names. You have enough kids and you run out of the names with the same letters. So Simon is left, he's got the weird name. And he's got sisters, and we aren't given their names, unfortunately. We see Jesus, the big brother, the firstborn, Mary's boy, the one who took care of the family because Joseph wasn't around. The guy you call when the door isn't shutting quite right. He's back here and he's standing in the synagogue teaching. And they take offense at him. They don't take offense at his teaching. They take offense at him. At the idea that he might know something about their good, their flourishing, about how to live and move and be. How dare this guy, this construction worker, come into our synagogue to teach us. And it doesn't matter what he says or does because they have decided that he cannot possibly say anything worth listening to. And Mark tells us that he could do no deed of power except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them and that he was amazed at their unbelief. And what's remarkable about this passage to me isn't that those in his hometown poo-poo who he is. Does that really surprise any of us? that those who were closest to Jesus had a hard time accepting him? If you've ever returned home to eye rolls or to condescending remarks from relatives, it's not hard to believe that Jesus' departure from being a carpenter was not well received. What's remarkable is that Jesus allows himself to be impacted by their lack of faith. He is vulnerable to their disbelief and in some ways even dependent upon their faith. In other words, Mark says that Jesus is limited in what he can do. It's not as if God all of a sudden lost the power to do miraculous things. But that God was vulnerable enough to depend on the reception of this community in Nazareth to do incredible things. What we see in Jesus' trip home is that God chooses to be tied to a people, even to a people that don't believe in him. He came to that which was his own, yet his own did not receive him. God places himself in a position of vulnerability and dependency. God gives dignity to the people of his hometown. Of course, Jesus wants them to believe the good news. That through him the kingdom of God is at hand. That God is for them and not against them. He wants the blind to see and the poor to have good news preached to them. But in order to receive that good news, the people of Nazareth will have to listen to the teaching of a carpenter, a widow's son. And they're not willing to do that. And Jesus won't press the issue. He respects the decisions that they make even to their detriment. This week, the first few verses of this passage made me ask myself what decisions I've made, what choices. Have I made choices this week which stop me from receiving or experiencing the good news that Jesus preaches? In other words, 
This story is an example of how God in Christ is non-coercive. He isn't going to manipulate or disregard the choices I make. And I want God to show up. I want to be still and to know that the Lord is God. I want a long list of things, or at least I think I do. Sometimes the choices that God unfortunately respects that I make don't lead me there. I decide to put off praying because I don't quite understand how it works. I neglect a friend because I just don't have time for them. I avoid a conversation with someone because they aren't important enough. I stew in thoughts which do not lead to my own good or to the good of those around me. And God lets me. Patiently, he waits me. He waits to lead me beside still waters to restore my soul. In Jesus' trip home, we see God's vulnerability. Jesus is vulnerable to the experience of returning home to the people that don't accept him. And remarkably, God has decided that we matter. Jesus chooses to be dependent upon the faith or lack of it that he finds in Nazareth. And he gives dignity to the choices and the decisions and the desires of those who either receive him or don't. Maybe Jesus is feeling deflated by this trip to his hometown and that's why he sends the disciples out. Or maybe he thinks better to send the disciples out after a sort of meager response rather than after some sort of walk on water, feed the 5,000 response. I wouldn't want the disciples hurting themselves on this first venture into ministry. And so for whatever reason, probably other reasons, he decides to send the disciples out. And he always sends them out in pairs, Jesus Never sends anyone out on their own. I don't think ever. He also tells them, only bring a staff. No bread. So you'll have to depend on others to provide food. No bag, which is either a reference to a bag that you just carry provisions in, or it's a reference to a sort of bag that, 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 that rabbis and tax collectors would hook onto their belt, and they would put taxes and collect um, offering and put it in that bag. So the disciples aren't going to be able to depend on making any income while they're out teaching. They're not to receive any compensation. No money of their own, Jesus says. Don't tuck anything into your belt. You won't be able to pay for your own travels. No change of tunic, so if you get cold, you will depend on the warmth of someone else's home. And what would these instructions have done for the disciples? It would have made them vulnerable. It would have made them dependent upon the hospitality of the people they were ministering to. The disciples would have to create relationships and rely on strangers opening up their homes in order to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Perhaps it is even in cultivating those relationships of dependency that the gospel is preached. If you can't find a place to stay, a table to share a meal around, a bed to sleep in, move on. Relationships of hospitality and welcome are prerequisites for preaching the gospel. There is never colonization when Jesus sends his disciples out. There's never a violent takeover. Jesus sends the disciples out not as conquerors, not even as hosts. He doesn't tell them to set up a spot in town and invite people to come to them, host some kind of gala, 
He tells them to depend on the hospitality of others. That's a terrible thing to ask of. Much easier to play the host, to build the church, to promote your events and get people to come to you. You have much more power as a host. It's very frightening to have to be hosted. Jesus sends the disciples out in a vulnerable state, needing the goodwill of the places that they go. What does it look like for us to serve the world in vulnerability? For us to depend on the hospitality of others? The passage from 2 Corinthians is really interesting. And I've glanced over it before, but it really caught my attention this time. Where Paul says to the Corinthians, I heard about this guy who was lifted up into the third realm of heaven. And I could boast about him. I could talk about that. I could tell you about these incredible spiritual experiences I've had as well. And he's giving the Second Corinthians kind of a model of what it looks like to talk about their faith. He's saying, you could, yeah, I could tell you these incredible stories about spiritual highs, moments when I was on top of the mountain, feeling great, so confident. But what I found is that God's power is actually not really on display in those stories. It's really on display when you talk about your weakness. And Paul says, I've prayed and prayed and prayed for healing and God didn't answer my prayers. And that's the story I tell. That's what I boast in. My weaknesses. And I think that's a picture of what it looks like to enter into relationships of vulnerability. I don't think the apt comparison is to say you should go out in pairs walking without your phones and see if you get lost or have to depend on someone giving you directions to get home. I mean, maybe, maybe God wants you to do that at some point. That's great. But I think a better comparison is to say, is to enter into a relationship leading with your weaknesses and your vulnerability like Paul is suggesting in this passage to the Corinthians. And as I thought about it, I was reminded of the storytelling workshop that we did a few months ago. And I got to have a few lovely conversations with people about that experience and what it felt like to share stories and to hear stories of people. We, we, we just, we told stories together. Um, stories about weaknesses and um, vulnerabilities. And one of the themes that kept coming up over and over again was that we assume that sharing our weaknesses, that sharing our stories of vulnerability will isolate us. But what we actually find is that our weaknesses tie us to one another. When we hear those stories about our vulnerabilities and our weaknesses, we find ourselves saying, me too. Me too. Like the story of Jesus returning to his hometown and not being accepted by who he finds there. And I wonder if he's surprised that that story made it into Mark. Maybe so that we could say, me too. And the remarkable thing, as I said before, isn't that his hometown doesn't accept him. It's that he goes anyways. Knowing that he'll be rejected. Hoping that he's wrong, but knowing it. And the good news of the kingdom of God is not coercive. It's heard by those who are willing to believe that a plumber might have Something to say that a sage missed. God comes to us with the good news of hope 
and joy made possible in Jesus, but he comes in vulnerability asking for our hospitality. May we receive God's invitation to life with him and may we, in our weaknesses, share that invitation with others. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you that you uh, came to a world, you came to that which was your own, the world that you created and loved, knowing full well that in all sorts of ways we would turn back our backs on your invitation for life and life to the fullest. I pray that you would help us see ways this week that we can join you in the work of your kingdom by seeking the flourishing of this city, the flourishing of others, our own flourishing. Grant that we would um, enter into relationships with our full selves, being confident that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.